0: QPOD, QIC's Investor Insights Series, and this is a podcast on calculating climate change. My name's Ravi shrish I'm the Executive Director of QIC's Client Solutions and Capital Team, and I'm here with a regular guest of mine, Dr. Matthew Peter. Welcome, Matthew.
1: Thanks, Ravi. Good to be speaking with you again.
0: And we're going to be talking about NGFS. We love acronyms on this uh, podcast. The Uh Network for Greening the Financial System. Now, Matthew, this is getting a a little bit of um, airplay, uh, particularly as we head into COP27. Uh, Can you talk me through who's involved in this network? And we'll refer to this as the NGFS going forward. Uh, So who's involved and what are they trying to achieve?
1: The NGFS, Ravi, it was founded in 2017 by a group of central bankers and their affiliated uh, financial supervisors, regulatory bodies, with the explicit aim of generating research and in particular scenario analysis that would measure the impact of, of climate change on the economy but importantly, on the stability of the financial system. Since 2017, the uh, membership's grown to over 100 central banks and their associated regulatory authorities. Uh, In fact, in 2018, the RBA and APRA uh, became signatories of uh, the ngfs it's important because those regulatory authorities are actually using the output of the ngfs the uh, impact of various scenarios on the economy and on financial market uh, variables to assess the uh, vulnerability of the financial system to climate change
0: from what you're saying there it sounds like we're going to also be using ngfs and the output of ngfs why have we chosen ngfs obviously there's other agencies that are modelling climate change and and the impact of climate change to the economy, particularly the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and the IEA, the International Energy Agency. Why have we chosen NGFS?
1: Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, the NGFS isn't the only group that are doing this sort of work, and you, you pointed out two of the majors. I mean, the IPCC is very high profile. That's the group that delivers um, scenario analysis to COP27, for example, and and a lot of the policy work is based off that. And the I A, the IEA, I should say, the anac- acronym sort of <laughs> getting the <laughs> better of me. But the IEA, they are also um, very high profile, and they also have got uh, scenarios. Now, the NGFS scenarios overlap a lot with those other two agencies, but the specific thing about the NGFS is a it's targeted directly to uh, outcomes for the for the financial system, financial market. So it's incredibly relevant to us. Secondly, the RBA and APRA are already using the these scenarios to stress test parts of the financial system here in Australia. So, yeah,
0: do, do, does it anticipate? Um, sorry, you might be getting to answer this, actually, Matthew. But are we anticipating that they will then? potentially take this sort of modelling to the superannuation system as well? Exactly,
1: so they're, they're doing a series that they call uh, climate vulnerability assessments, and they've already launched the first one of those with the banking sector. So uh, what that means is they take the output, uh, the impact on, on economic and financial market variables of the, of the various scenarios to do with different um, outcomes for climate change hand those over to the banking sector, to the banks, and they have to run them through their models to, to uh, report back on how it affects their balance sheet, profit and loss, their, basically their their sustainability under those scenarios. And APRA have alluded and the RBA have alluded to the fact that they're likely to roll that out to insurance companies, the insurance sector, for example, as well as superannuation. So super funds have to get ready to be able to respond most likely to these climate vulnerability assessments, where they have to be able to use these outputs to report back to APRA the impact of uh, climate change on on their members' portfolios. Balances.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I know QIC uses extensive economic modelling to produce forecasts, and specifically, we use NIGEM for our global forecasts. I understand that NGFS also uses NIGEM as its economic model, so that gives us a bit of an advantage here, uh, does it not, Matthew, in terms of our use of NIGEM and our expert user status on NIGEM?
1: Yes, ex- exactly right, uh, Ravi. We've got a relationship spanning back over a decade with uh, the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, the the uh, think tank that produces NIGEM. We use it internally for our own economic modelling, um, including our baseline forecasts and our scenarios, as you pointed out, Ravi. And we've worked with the people at uh, the National Institute there over many years, um, tailoring our version of the model to the sort of uh, financial market outcomes that we want to be able to forecast. So it's a tremendous opportunity for us here at QIC to continue that work with the National Institute and the NGFS to really um, hone those scenarios that have been produced for uh, the purposes of the impact on the Australian financial system
0: and economy. Now, I know NGFS also put out some scenarios, particularly as it related to um, transition risks. They described three scenarios, an orderly scenario, a disorderly one, and a hothouse scenario. Um, Could you briefly talk me through those those scenarios, and also perhaps maybe focusing on the disorderly scenario, which is actually the one getting the most attention at the moment?
1: So they, they characterise the way forward. Uh, it's really different approaches to transition, to a very to aggressive transition, to sort of no transition or no, no new policies to transition. So that takes you from the orderly to the hothouse in terms of extreme. So the orderly is the most benign. That's where we have fairly active policies to speed up the transition to decarbonising or to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. But the way in which those policies are implemented around the globe is in a very coordinated way. And that limits sort of fallout in terms of loss in productivity and and, uh, uncertainty in financial markets. The second group of scenarios, the disorderly that you referred to, are also ones in which policies are put in place to achieve uh, uh, net zero carbon emissions by 2050. But that's one where um, across sectors, the, um, the the implementation of those policies is not coordinated and across geographic regions, they're not coordinated. So for example, if we don't coordinate across regions, then um, technology gains that are create that are discovered and implemented and executed in, in one sector, Aren't shared or don't come across to other sectors. You don't benefit from that in a in a sort of a coordinated way, or uh, monetary policy is is not coordinated across different different um, regions. So some central banks are, are not raising interest rates. Others are, are are raising interest rates too quickly, for for example, and that creates a, a certain amount of volatility across the globe. And that volatility feeds into higher risk premium on assets. So that is, is turns a sort of the transition phase into a more damage, having a more damaging effect or more cost, I should say, uh, on GDP than if it was orderly. And then the other scenario, the hothouse, is where basically we just go with the uh, policies that are in train now. And it turns out in that world, um, it's you, you can't keep... Uh, The climate uh, or the the increase in in, uh, temperature uh, below about three degrees above where it was uh, prior
0: to uh, industrialisation. You're listening to uh, QPOD, QIC's Investor Insights Series. This is a podcast on the cost of climate change and I'm talking to Dr Matthew Peter. Um, Matthew, obviously some of these scenarios will have a um, significant impact on GDP and potentially also uh and undoubtedly an impact on inflation something that you and i've talked about before can you briefly touch on perhaps just the inflationary side of things yes so um
1: with the inflation the disorderly is is quite uh damaging uh to inflation because you don't have um the coordination across policy across the rollout and sharing of, um, of technology, and you've got issues to do with um, with uh, volatility in financial markets, resulting in spikes, intermittent spikes in risk premium. The cost in terms of the uh, the amount that you have to raise um, implicit carbon taxes, for example, and the cost to um, because of lower productivity growth, the cost of that lists inflation quite substantially. So in the disorderly world, um, uh, by the time you get to 2050, um, inflate, you know, price level is, is around about 10% higher than it would have been otherwise been. But a lot of that increase in price level happens in the first 10 years. Okay, so that's akin to adding one percentage point per annum to um, to inflation, so you know we've heard a lot of um, discussion about this Ravi by people who are looking for reasons why inflation will be difficult to get back down into the uh, band of two to three percent, roughly speaking, of most central banks' inflation rates. One of them will be this longer term effect if we ha- have a very disorderly sort of move towards transition towards net zero carbon emissions. Um, could add one percentage point in a secular trend you know that that's that's quite
0: significant it's fascinating work matthew uh, as always fantastic speaking with you really enjoyed it and i think you know it's one of those topics that we could do a series on uh, and 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 we may talk about this again uh, but thank you for joining me and thank you uh, the audience for joining Matthew and I on QIC's Investor Insights Series. Today's podcast has been on the cost of climate change. I'm Ravi Shrishkandaraja, Executive Director for Client Solutions and Capital. Until next time, thank you.